The Bowery Boys, episode 315, Abandoned Pantheon, the Hall of Fame for Great Americans. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Tom... Tom, we are far away from each other right now, but I want you to even imagine a place further away. Uh, I want you to imagine something continental and epic. I'm ready for this. Where are you whisking me off to? Okay, so imagine the hills of ancient Greece, the gods and goddesses of ancient times. A great pantheon shining down from Mount Olympus. Now, imagine that this is not in Greece, but in the United States of America. And imagine that we're not talking about mythical gods, but the sculptural representation of American gods, or shall I say the great cultural and scientific men and women of the age. I can just see it. Where is this shining beacon on a hill? That beacon is in the Bronx, a stone colonnade that overlooks the Harlem River and the area of Upper Manhattan. This is the Hall of Fame for Great Americans. You have really painted quite a picture here, Greg. I can practically hear the the angelic choirs singing now. <laughs> I also happen to know that this is one of your favorite places in the entire city. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit pretentious. It's a little bit cheesy. And most of all, it is more or less abandoned. Okay. The Hall of Fame turns 120 years old this year, and it features the sculpted bronze busts of 96 people who were considered, quote, great, individuals who contributed something important to the foundation of the United States. And are they indeed, quote, great Americans? Most of them are considered great. Many of them are forgotten, and there's probably a couple in there that today would be considered not so great. But in the early 20th century, being included in this hall was among the greatest of all civic recognition. Essentially, it's the equivalent of the Kennedy Center Honors or a Presidential Medal of Freedom. You've got to admit that the whole place also has kind of a touch of American Idol thrown into it as well. I mean, it. there is something that's really, the way it was set up was very much like a reality show or a game show. Yes, it does have similarities, except instead of Kelly Clarkson, you have Susan B. Anthony. And instead of, <laughs> instead of Clay Aiken, you have Senator Henry Clay. Okay, you just came up with those. So, so basically, it's like a really, really smart American Idol or nerdy yes. American Idol. Uh-huh. But seriously... It epitomizes, you know, the loftiest of all ideals. And yet, you're also suggesting that it's also kind of forgotten and sort of mysterious. But at some point, it was actually really famous and very important. Now, many people actually know what this place is, even if they don't quite recognize the name. It was so famous in the first half of the 20th century that it was mentioned in a song from the 1939 film... The Wizard of Oz. From now on, you'll be history. You'll be history. You'll be history. You'll be history. And we will glorify your name. The 
Wow, wait. So even the Hall of Fame was revered by the munchkins over the rainbow in some other <laughs> land. Uh, munchkin land, to be precise. But I didn't realize they were referring to this Hall of Fame. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's so famous, Tom. It was so famous in its time that this place in the Bronx is what actually popularized the general term Hall of Fame. Are you saying that all Halls of Fame derive from this particular Hall of Fame in the Bronx? Before its construction, the phrase Hall of Fame did mean a building, usually a very classical building. There was even a Hall in Munich, which was constructed in the 1840s, which was the chief inspiration for the Bronx Hall of Fame. Okay, That had famous Bavarians in it. Ours would have famous Americans. But this place in America, in particular, created this idea. The idea that one could collect the greats of a field and put them in a, quote, hall, a virtual hall of fame. So today, of course, that means the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, probably even the the Hollywood Walk of Fame, just by extension, sure, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. But then what happened? Why don't we still revere this Hall of Fame? Are people still being added to this Hall of Fame? Well, so that's going to be the subject of our show here, because the answer is sadly No. But before we begin, Tom, I want you and I, we're going to tell the story here, and then at the end of the show, so just put on your thinking cap right now, I want us each to select three new members of the Hall of Fame for the year 2020, okay, as though it were still an active organization here. So think about who you'd like to see in 2020 in the Hall of Fame. Talk about pressure. Okay, so we'll both come up with three and reveal them at the end of the show. So in terms of situating, I guess we're starting this story right up here in the Bronx. Well, actually, the story begins further south of here in Washington Square Park, or rather to the college campus situated in the 19th century, at least, on the eastern side of Washington Square Park. And you would be speaking, of course, of New York University. Mm -hmm. Or the University of the City of New York, as it was called back then, founded in 1831 as a egalitarian option, let's just say, to the other schools of higher learning that had been developed in the city. Egalitarian, because places like Columbia University mostly admitted just young white men from pretty wealthy families. By the way, we have an entire show on the history of NYU, episode number 142. Now, its undergraduate program would not be a huge financial success at first, but it would have graduate schools that would become quite renowned for the day. And during the mid-19th century, it would be the graduate schools that would drive the direction of the institution and would keep it afloat during some financial downtimes. So it was really known early on for its graduate programs in law, medicine, even its dentistry school, mm-hmm. but not so much for its undergrad program? Well, not at first. The school would get a reinvention of sorts when a professor at the school named Henry Mitchell McCracken was named the chancellor of the school in 1891. So that he brought a lot of exciting new innovations to the school. And as a result, the admission to the undergraduate program did increase. He really got things McCracken. He's got one of the best names. You know, it's, it's almost like onomatopoetic. 
So McCracken's made chancellor in the Washington Square Park campus in 1891. And the neighborhood at the time was pretty different than it was when the school was founded. Uh, As we recently mentioned on our shirtwaist strike show, the village was soon filled with all kinds of factories, garment factories, other industries. Yeah. And then you've got Bleecker Street very close by, just south of the park, which was infamous during this period as a red light district. Oh. And of course, just generally speaking, you had the bohemian delights of the village, which even here in the 1890s were tempting students away from their studies. So McCracken decided that the campus needed to expand, but far away from this area. So something more tranquil and less within the bustle of the city. And meanwhile, Columbia basically was doing the same thing because by yeah. the by the late 1850s, Columbia had relocated from downtown to Madison and 49th Street. And then within 40 years, by the late 1890s, they'd be on the move again. So Columbia chose to relocate its entire campus up to a neighborhood called Morningside Heights in 1897, which is where they are at right now. McCracken. Well, most are actually at home doing e-learning, but you know. <laughs> oh, that's true. Well, the the buildings that comprise Columbia are there now, but McCracken chose to move just its undergraduate program, but chose to move it even farther to an area of the West Bronx, which would soon become a borough of New York City, right? The land that they would develop here in the West Bronx was actually considered a part of New York City already. It had been acquired in the 1870s, and it was an area of the Bronx that they called the Annexed District. Remember this? Mm -hmm. Uh, So essentially, McCracken was just building another campus in another part of the city. So NYU is going to build this new campus. Did they just have all of this money laying around waiting to, to construct a campus? Actually, McCracken was going to need some funding because this was going to be a very big deal. And he received that funding, no surprise, in 1892. And most of it, notably, from the railway king himself, and some would say notorious robber baron himself, Jay Gould. 1892. Okay, so this was the, the year that the land would be acquired for NYU. Uh, It was on an estate that was actually owned by a university graduate, a 40-acre estate on a very high bluff in the Bronx, overlooking the Harlem River and high over much of Manhattan. So quite literally, higher education. Quite (laughs) literally, yes. (laughs) Much, much (laughs) higher education. And that is, again, the same as with Columbia, who had built their campus on a very, you know, lofty, high piece of land. All they needed now was a bunch of, you know, very classical buildings to sort of complete the effect. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Columbia had several beautiful campus buildings and a campus that was designed by Charles McKim of McKim, Mead and White. The go-to architectural firm of the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. So obviously, McCracken here and NYU, well, they wanted to get in on some of that Beaux-Arts action themselves. (laughs) So they called up, well, who else did they call up? The same firm. And in fact, employed the most flamboyant partner of that firm, Stanford White. So White designed not only the entire new campus for NYU, but a beautiful new library, which would be one of its centerpiece buildings, a structure with a glorious dome modeled 
after the Pantheon in Rome. So on October 1895, a groundbreaking ceremony at the library up here in the Bronx attracted thousands who took the train up to this area, which was now called University Heights, took the train up to soak in all these beautiful views. And did you say that was in 1895? Yes, the fall of 1895. But wasn't Jay Gould dead by this time? Yeah, he had actually passed away in the winter of 1892, just three years before. The philanthropist, actually, who kept this project funded was none other than Jay Gould's daughter, Helen Gould. In fact, when the library was eventually opened, it would be named Gould Memorial Library, named in honor of Jay Gould. Although she, Helen, was the one who was actually overseeing the whole gift. She was even an alumnus of the university's law school, which is pretty incredible. That was mm. 1895, I think. So needless to say, she is a very important figure here in the history of NYU. And she is also responsible for funding the Hall of Fame for Great Americans. Right. The Hall of Fame. I almost <laughs> forgot that that Sorry, was the yes. subject of the show. <laughs> I've been kind of blinded by the construction of all of these you know, sparkling new college campuses. So back to the Hall of Fame, how how did the Hall of Fame even factor into this new campus? Well, as it turns out, White's design for the campus had to deal with wide variances and elevations. The Bronx up here at this point, is it's, it's very hilly, right? It was a very hilly area. Right. And at the back of the library that he developed here, it was actually close to an avenue today, that's Sedgwick Avenue. But... To get down there, there's this very steep drop-off. So White designed a terrace that jutted out, right, That Mm -hmm. sort of overlooking it, and placed upon that terrace a semicircle colonnade, just, you know, to keep it all classical and consistent here, 630 feet from one end to the other along this semicircle. Now, Greg, you will recall that we visited the Hall of Fame together many years ago um, Mm -hmm. after we had been driving around following the Croton Reservoir. That's how long ago that was when we were doing that show. (laughs) Uh, But on the way back home, we stopped at the Hall of Fame. And aside from just being bowled over by that experience, you know, the Hall of Fame itself, just the sheer vista that the site offers is really... It's really jaw-dropping. It's it's a very inspiring vantage point to look out from. I mean, it really is. It's 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 breathtaking, and it also gave McCracken a cracklin idea to turn these columns and these niches here into a sort of museum. Inspired by the Ruhmeshalle, am I saying that right? Sorry, the That'll the, work. the the German Bavarian Hall of Fame, inspired by that structure, as well as by the Pantheon in Paris, McCracken dreamed of a way to create a modern Pantheon, if you will. The great figures of modern American history that could be presented in the same illustrious format as, say, like the Roman emperors. Okay, so McCracken comes up with this idea to have this Hall of Fame, and there are going to be busts, but who exactly is going to get to decide who gets included in this Hall of Fame? 
Well, according to an article that he wrote back in 1900, this new Hall of Fame would be chosen by a, quote, national body of electors who might represent the wisdom of the people. Who might represent. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And who, who exactly did McCracken think might represent the wisdom of the people? Well, initially, at least, they settled on a 100-member committee consisting of, and this is a direct quote, quote, college presidents, educators, professors of history, Mm -hmm. scientists, publicists, editors, authors, and chief justices, unquote. Did you say publicists? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love, we need a publicist. I mean, I love them, but really? Chief justices and publicists? I was just as surprised as you were, but that is um, well. McCracken also wrote that it would re- that this Hall of Fame would recognize the quote multiformity of human greatness, meaning that unlike Washington D.C., you know, there's a lot of classical buildings down there with a bunch of statues in there, but this would not simply be politicians, but individuals chosen from many walks of life. And also a selection process that's free, I suppose, of political influence. So, of a sort, yeah. No, so no, no politicians, but people of other accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And finally, it would be restricted mostly to native-born Americans. Now, to be honest, this final rule, when you see the kind of the the final victors, the final entrance into the Hall of Fame, this final rule is somewhat loosely adapted and they came up with exceptions almost immediately for instance alexander hamilton who was born in the bahamas right and they would go on to change these rules Mm -hmm. but generally speaking this hall of fame would be a place where famous quote important americans would be represented in their bust form so why was this project essentially abandoned by the 1970s why did the Hall of Fame go bust? We'll continue our story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. 
hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, Tom, before we tackle whatever happened to the Hall of Fame, could you just take us on a walkthrough? Kind of like a virtual tour guide? That's unfortunately the best that you can do these days. Folks, it's going to get better. We will be taking tours again. Uh, So hang in there. But yes. Okay, so we're going to walk now across the former campus of NYU's Uptown Campus. Today, it is the Bronx Community College's lovely campus. We're walking toward their neoclassical library that you just described. We see those, you know, six marble columns out front. It's dome over its rotunda, its center rotunda. It's quite, quite an impression. It actually looks a little bit like the low library over at Columbia. They're kind of like cousins. Well, which makes sense because Charles McKim designed low library and Stanford White, as you mentioned, designed this library. But this is where it gets good. As we're approaching the library... Uh, We're going to veer to the right, and you'll notice the entrance of that covered arcade over there. Mm -hmm. The the gate is open, and we're going to walk right into it. Oh, it's covered above us, but it's open air on the sides. Mm -hmm. And yes, from here, like you can immediately check out that amazing view of the Harlem River. Yeah, and and this arcade or this colonnade, as we should say, is is lined with columns curving uh, semicircularly around the library. And it's passing next to two other classroom buildings as well. The best part of the walk, the most dramatic part, actually hugs that cliff or is on that terrace that goes out over the cliff. But what you will obviously notice right away are the sculptures. There are so many spots, niches, if you will, for sculptures. Yeah, There are, in fact, 102 niches. But there are only 96 bronze busts. Right, and you'll notice that um, that the arcade is divided up by categories or by classes of great Americans. There are the inventors, the politicians, writers, clergy, etc. And each bust, each person has its own niche and its own plaque underneath them, giving their name, their dates, and a few, a few sentences, some quotes sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, explaining who they were. I would say that the busts are like appropriately social distanced from each other right now. (laughs) much farther than six feet. And the busts are actually original, right? Like all of these were made specifically for the Hall of Fame. Right. And they were made by only by American sculptors. And there was a caveat that they could not be reproduced for at least 50 years. 
which really isn't a problem anymore for most <laughs> no, of these. That, that has expired, hasn't it? So uh, how are these men and women categorized? Okay, there are many different categories or classes, and, and we'll just walk through some of them. I'm, I'm categorizing these categories alphabetically just to make things a little bit easier to take in, okay? So we're uh-huh. going to start with the actors and actresses. We've got Edwin Booth, in fact, notable New Yorker, podcast subject. And then over here, we've got authors and editors. Oh, let's hear it for the editors. <laughs> in, in, and including some authors who needed editors. No, but here we have Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain. There's Washington Irving over here. William Cullen Bryant, Edgar Allan Poe, Walt Whitman, Thomas Paine. Are there any women here, I yeah, hope? Sorry, I was as I mentioned, focusing on those with a New York connection. Um, Mm -hmm. But yes, Harriet Beecher Stowe is right over here, as did her brother, if we switch categories here, Henry Ward Beecher. He's over in the lineup of clergy. That's a party over there. (laughs) Continuing on, the inventors section is also a favorite. Big names, including New Yorkers, Peter Cooper. There's Robert Fulton over here. Both the Wright brothers, I'm just including them since they did do some work in New York. And here's uh-huh. Thomas Edison. Although there's no Nikola Tesla. We'll get to that in a second. Here is another category. We've made it to musicians, painters, and sculptors, which kind of sounds like a trivial pursuit category, you know? <laughs> so that's always the hardest wedge to win when you're playing. <laughs> um, or a little bit like Jeopardy, actually. Right. Like, who was John James Audubon? Who was Stephen <laughs> Foster? Who was Augustus St. Gaudens? Wait, now are you... Wait, are you actually asking me who who they were? Or, no, oh, no, no, no. I was keeping... Question. Sorry, oh, I'm sorry. Ke- staying with the Jeopardy theme. Anyhow, yeah. um, there's... Uh, moving on, philanthropists and reformers, which is nice, um, including Susan B. Anthony over here. And... Will This category will also include Andrew Carnegie, which is interesting to note that he is included as a philanthropist and reformer. Wait a minute, but you said will include. Yes, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie was elected into the class of 1976. There were three notable Americans elected, including Clara Barton, who was a founder of the Red Cross, and scientist Luther Burbank, but their busts have yet to be sculpted. Mm. We'll, we'll discuss that in a minute. Right. Moving on, we've got a whole slew of politicians and statesmen. If I counted correctly, I think there's 17 of them. Uh, several presidents, of course, no big surprises. Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Lincoln, Grover, Cleveland, Theodore Roosevelt, FDR. Back up a little bit. Grover, Cleveland is, is amongst... <laughs> Is amongst these presidents that are chosen. Yeah, and you know, like you hinted at at the beginning of the show, many of the choices of who's included here actually reflect the people whom Americans really thought were important at the time that the Hall of Fame was being built or was really kind of moving. They may not reflect people we, in 2020... Uh, reflect upon as truly the the best of the best, but mm-hmm. the, the greatest of the great Americans. But over there, I know you want to hang out at Hamilton's bust, for he is included here, uh, yeah. but we do need to kind of start wrapping things up here. 
All right, so but who have we missed here? We've gotten they're scientists, right? Yep. There, mm-hmm. there are soldiers and sailors, right? R- right. Um, you'll notice, uh, bless those scientists over there. But uh, as we move on past the soldiers and sailors, a couple here have been removed. Over there is a bust of General Sherman uh, by Augustus St. Gaudens, who is himself included in this lineup. Oh, wow. And then, of course, Ulysses S. Grant's got to be here, right? That's right. He's right there. But if we had come pre-2017, we would have also seen a a few other men included here, which we'll discuss in a second. And look over there, Tom. There's the teachers. Yes, including several women. There's uh, women's rights activist Emma Willard. There's Mary Mason Lyon, a a pioneer in women's education. Uh, Frances Willard, a suffragist and temperance leader. And th- this category also includes Booker T. Washington. This certainly is a tour of, of famous Americans, a, a, a trip through your high school social studies book. Mm-hmm. Uh, indeed, an esteemed group. Uh, but also, it's quite interesting to note who didn't make this list. Yeah, and there is a list, actually, of people who have been nominated and voted upon, but who have not been elected. Some have actually been nominated multiple times. And I'm sure this is a much lengthier list, so we probably don't have time to go through the whole thing. But we do have time to mention just a few great New Yorkers who are on that list, including George M. Cohan, Lou Gehrig, and Babe Ruth, Horace Greeley, Fiorello LaGuardia, Charles McKim, even Martha Washington, um, mm. who I'm including for her time that she did spend in New York City, <laughs> and Nikola Tesla. I'd like to go back just uh, a f- to something you said a few minutes ago about some kind of missing busts mm-hmm. over in the soldier section. There have been a few controversial selections to the Hall of Fame. Most notably, a man named Robert E. Lee, who was among the very first inductees to the Hall of Fame, right alongside George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And Robert E. Lee was the commander of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He surrendered to the Union Army in 1865, just 35 years before this hall for Great Americans opened. Yeah, this is an interesting occurrence in history. His reputation was salvaged during the late 19th century, seen as a truly noble American who had a very devoted sense of duty, you know, albeit to the Confederacy. But not all people were excited about his inclusion on this list, even back in 1900. He was by far the most controversial inductee on the list. A writer in the New York Sun newspaper in October of 1900, wrote, quote, At this time, there has come up a false and mushy sentimentality which would have the American people forget the outrage against the Republic committed by the rebellion's forces under the command of Robert E. Lee. It is that meek and mawkish sentimentality which puts the name of Lee among the great commanders entitled to the veneration of posterity. But... If he was eventually inducted into the Hall of Fame, not everybody clearly objected to him as a nominee. No, I mean, it was obviously very contentious. There were Southern newspapers that actually attacked the New York Sun 
for writing those words, for reopening old wounds, as they said. And there was even strong local sentiment here in New York City by this point, uh, advocates for Lee, considering this a kind of olive branch of sorts. From a letter writer in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, Would it not be a graceful tribute to our worthy Southern brothers to include the names of some of their great heroes on the Hall of Fame record? Though Robert E. Lee and T.J. Jackson fought for what we think is a bad cause, yet we should not forget that such men acted as their consciences dictated, and their whole lives show them to be great, good, and most worthy gentlemen." So there's that argument, but he, but this this writer also mentions T.J. Jackson, Stonewall Jackson. Yes, Stonewall Jackson, who would be on that initial ballot as well, but would not make the cut then. However, in 1955, Stonewall Jackson would make the Hall of Fame with a bust installed two years later in 1957. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were removed. Governor Andrew Cuomo removed their busts in 2017. In his words, quote, There are many great Americans, many of them New Yorkers worthy of a spot in this great hall. These two Confederates are not among them, unquote. But back to the idea of campaigning. So it it really was, in some ways, if there were these campaigns, it really was kind of like American Idol. Yeah. I mean, elections were held every five years for five candidates. Right, yeah, and I think they scaled it down to three candidates eventually at some point. But this was a nationwide competition. To quote from a 1955 profile from a newspaper in Casper, Wyoming, quote, at the deadline for nominations in April, thousands of letters from all parts of the nation had been received. Dr. McCracken would have been pleased, indeed, with the extent of participation by young people. More than a thousand nominations were sent in by national honors chapters in high schools. But of course, the final selection would be made by this national group of electors. Now... One of the more interesting campaigns that I found in my research, I mean, like every historical figure seemed to have some proponents for them, like writing letters, letter campaigns. One I found really interesting uh, came in 1960 and came from the African-American newspaper, The New York Age. Now, up to that time, 1960, there was only one black American in the Hall of Fame. Booker T. Washington, which you mentioned, in the education section, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Age launched a campaign that year to get Frederick Douglass into the Hall of Fame. It's almost embarrassing that he hadn't already been included. They didn't choose him that year. Instead, the three inductees that were voted into the Hall in 1960 were Thomas Edison, Henry David Thoreau, and Edward McDowell. Now, a second African-American would be elected into the Hall of Fame in 1973, George Washington Carver. So then there would be two men of color. In 1973, which brings us into the campus and the Bronx and the city in the 1970s, when there are big changes happening. 1970s New York, it's one of our most popular refrains on this show. The city is cash-strapped. 
but New York University is especially so. As we've spoken about in many other podcasts, many New Yorkers by this point had fled to the suburbs, and the city's reputation was deteriorating as its crime rate was increasing. So by the 1970s, NYU, they were not getting very many students from out of state, and their overall enrollment had fallen badly. And so in 1972, they made a really painful, heartbreaking decision to sell their Bronx campus. And in the following year, 1973, it was purchased by the state of New York as a campus for the city university system, the Bronx Community College. Which is still home there today. It's really interesting that they bought this campus and, you know, to use as classrooms and libraries, but they also got this Hall of Fame out of the deal, (laughs) you know? Did they keep the Hall of Fame going? Was that part of the deal? Did they negotiate around the Hall of Fame? Well, it didn't look good, right? In New York in the 1970s, and in particular in a borough where the city was cutting down just basic essential services, mm-hmm. it did not appear as though the Hall of Fame stood much of a chance. But there were some prominent electors, you know, voting members of the Hall of Fame who made some last-ditch attempts to save it, including one man by the name of Robert Moses. Robert Moses wanted to save it. Yes, he did. By 1973 here, he was effectively run out of New York City politics, so his his power brokering was on the wane, but he was still involved, and he even lobbied to get the Hall of Fame moved out of the Bronx and into Manhattan, and actually into Washington Square Park was one right. idea that I read, by the time of the 1976 Bicentennial. However, obviously, that plan never came to fruition. But then back to the Hall of Fame, did they continue voting? Did they stop voting? Well, for they kept it kind of churning, believe it or not. For a time in the mid-1970s, Bronx Community and NYU did attempt to maintain it on some level. And so in 1976, as you mentioned, three more people were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Andrew Carnegie... Clara Barton, and Luther Burbank. But the Hall of Fame then ran out of money, and so as a result, those busts were never commissioned. And then by 1979, they decided that all future elections to the Hall would be called off. And thus, the Hall of Fame as an idea simply sort of ceased to exist, ceased to move forward. Yeah. But the Hall of Fame, believe it or not, and all of those busts, except for two, they're all still there today. You can actually go visit them. It's, it's, it's one of these hidden treasures of New York that I just love. Uh, you can visit the website for Bronx Community College for visiting hours. It is a college campus, so you'll need a valid ID. The hall, by the way, is in needs of repairs. It's in a slightly sorry shape and is at risk of deteriorating further. So I think once we're all able to kind of run around the city and visit things, I definitely suggest putting this on your itinerary. Just, I think bringing awareness to kind of places like this, these strange little places, is just, is good enough. And who knows? I mean, maybe we can all band together and help bring back the Hall of Fame. You know, get some new inductees in there. Well, I... 
Tom, that actually brings me back to the question that I posed to you at the beginning of the show here. Okay, so have you been thinking about this? Um, kinda. (laughs) (laughs) What three Americans would you, Tom Mm -hmm. Myers, induct into the Hall of Fame if you were an elector alongside Robert Moses? Could you remind me of the rules again? So they have to be dead at least 10 years and had to have made an important contribution to American society. Okay, well, I would say, I felt like the list was kind of light on musicians. I don't know how you felt. So I think I would vote for Leonard Bernstein. You know, he composed, he educated generations of children in music, and obviously he conducted and led the Philharmonic for decades. A great choice. A great choice. Uh, What's your Mm -hmm. second one? Well, I was wondering if we could stretch the rules a little. I mean, I feel, I kind of feel like Steve Jobs might be worthy of a bust. I mean, his, you know, he passed in 2011, so we might have to wait till 2021. But I mean, he did sort of help bring about a personal computing revolution, no? Look, I mean, by the time we theoretically get this together and find a sculptor and everything, it's going to be 2021. So, let's <laughs> Yeah, because get... St. Gowden's is no longer available. <laughs> I will allow it. Um, okay. And your third. That's easy. Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, come on. First lady, New Yorker, United Nations champion. She was a, she was the first delegate to the U.N., why isn't she in there? Bring her on. Yes. I'm all for it. And, Thumbs up. And Okay. And you? Well, you know, there, interestingly, are not any sports figures in in this collection, which I think is... They have been nominated. They have been nominated. Like Babe Ruth, right, was nominated. Mm-hmm. And Lou Gehrig. But I figured if you have to have two members of the Confederacy, then you should at least have a couple sports icons. I just don't think I'm being unreasonable. So I'm going to nominate... Roberto Clemente, who is born in Puerto Rico. Uh, He's a right fielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates who died young. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but we're going to put him here too, all right? So he's there. He's got my vote. Okay, good. And second? I'm going to go with Martin Luther King, who I would hope would have been elected almost immediately had this Hall of Fame continued into existence into the 1980s. And um, if not, then what would have even been the point of having a Hall of Fame for great Americans? And your third? Well, I mean, this is not, this is like the most predictable answer, but of course I have to put Billie Holiday because duh. (laughs) (laughs) Like we even needed to ask you. Now, you can visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some views into the Hall of Fame for Great Americans and the campus of the Bronx Community College. Obviously, we did not get the opportunity to go there this week, you know, in time to record the show, but we did stop by a few years ago, and we will put those images up on the website as well. We would like to thank all of you who support us on Patreon.com with small monthly donations. During this insane period, you are really assisting in helping us produce this show two times a week. We are blown away and grateful for your support. By the way, I just sent out a on Patreon a summary posting, also 
got into some email boxes, I think, of all of the exclusive audio that you can receive right now when you support the Barry Boys on Patreon. So if two shows a week from us isn't enough, there's actually (laughs) hours more exclusive audio to listen to, including episodes of The Takeout, which is our after-show conversation. Um, There's 10 episodes of that. There are also 10 episodes of the Bowery Boys Movie Club. Oh, that's right, because a lot of people have time to watch movies. So this is um, a great time to watch some of the great movies that were shot or set in New York City. And uh, we watched them together in the Bowery Boys Movie Club. Yeah, in fact, go through that list and have a little film festival. That's a really good idea. Do it with your friends on Zoom. (laughs) And then, of course, there are recordings of some of our recent live events. Since we won't be having any live events for the very near future here, this will be your best chance to hear us in a live environment. And Greg, do you have a list of our newest Patreons to thank? These are people who have signed up since our last show. Yeah, uh, we want to thank Sam A., Gene K., Joe S., Sun S., Maureen J, Vivian S, Hunter P, Ann C, Ryan P, Kate H, and Elise. Simply Elise. Thank you for supporting the Bowery Boys. Also, we have been blown away by the amazing suggestions that people have been sending to us. So please keep sending suggestions to Tom at BoweryBoysPodcast.com or Greg at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Suggestions for these shorter, twice-weekly shows. We really love the ideas that are coming in, and we will thank you on the show. So thank you for joining us as we gallivant through the hallowed halls of the Hall of Fame for Great Americans. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.